Monday, April 30th. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers, from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Happy Monday, guys. Hey, Chris. Thank you. Uh, last week, it was all earnings all the time. Today, it's all deals. We've got uh, deals in the energy and beverage industries. We may have a travel deal for you, but first, we're going to get to the deal of the day. Shares of Barnes & Noble up more than 60% this morning on the news that Microsoft will invest $300 million in Barnes & Noble's Nook Digital Book and College Text businesses. Uh, Charlie, there's going to be a new subsidiary for the businesses. Microsoft has a stake of about 17.5% in it. It values this subsidiary at $1.7 billion, which is roughly twice what Barnes & Noble's total market cap was a week ago. Right. Um, it, it, a lot of threads to get in here. Just first and foremost, when you first heard about the deal, what did you think? I'm glad I don't short stocks for a living. (laughs) This is a company a lot of us have left for dead. I mean, we saw no way Barnes & Noble would compete with Amazon or Apple. And here they are pulling a rabbit out of their hat. Uh, I see the deal as win-win for both parties. It allows Barnes & Noble to focus on relationships with the content producers, whether it's book publishers or magazines or newspapers, as well as the relationships with its customers. Customers, and it lets the hardware and the software operating system of the devices go on someone else's shoulders, which was not really Barnes & Noble's core competency. There's no way they could compete with Apple and Amazon on either of those fronts, and it's good to let Microsoft do some of the heavy lifting in that regard. Um, the Nook was one of the bright spots for Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Uh, unit sales were up 64% last quarter, and content was up 85%, so it is something that resonates with consumers and was doing well. Uh, from the Microsoft side, I think what this does, it allows them to prep for the launch of Windows 8 tablets later this year on a platform that people already know and are familiar with. Um, Microsoft, as we all know, has no tablet presence whatsoever right now as I look at Joe's iPad. <laughs> and, you know, something like the Nook helps them get some mindshare. Uh, so I, I see it as a good deal for both sides. Uh, Joe, a lot of coverage of this story. One of the headlines on Yahoo Finance was, Desperate Meets Hopeless. Um, is it really that bleak for both these companies? Now what? they just need to get Ticketmaster in there to complete the 90s <laughs> hate trio. Uh, no, it's not that, well, let me rephrase. For Microsoft, no, it's not that desperate. I mean, this is a small deal for them in the grand scheme of things. Yep. And it's a good one because they got a sliver of this business, like Charlie's saying, but they didn't have to pay for the whole thing, which for them is just great. They get a little bit of expertise, distribution, and a nice feature. Uh, for Barnes & Noble, I mean, this is... I mean, this is uh, this is like God coming down from heaven. <laughs> I was going to say, we, yeah. we, uh, we, when uh, early this morning, you and I were talking, and you you invoked the uh, the artistic phrase "Deus ex machina." It yes. really does seem like at the end of the show, where it's like, "Oh wait, the, ma- <laughs> the magic wand is waved," and boom. Yeah, it seemed like a bit of a plot cheat, but. <laughs> You know, they did have this valuable asset that was sitting there, and I guess you could say it was just a matter of time until they <laughs> unlocked it. But, you know, I definitely was surprised to see it come through, even though Mike, even though the deal does make sense and Microsoft has plenty of change and Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble is desperate. How, you know, Charlie, you touched on this, sort of the e-reader space. You've got Amazon with the Kindle, um, Apple uh, with the iPad. How legit is this um new device, when you look at it through the lens of this deal, is this now, with Microsoft backing it, is the Nook now a much more formidable threat, a much more formidable sort of third player 
um, in this industry, or is this on some level rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? I, I think it does help them be a more formidable player. And they talked on the last Barnes & Noble call about some of the apps used on the Nook, like Angry Birds. Uh, Netflix is very prominent. And if you talk about ecosystems and companies that have a big one and that right. are left out in the cold, it's hard to imagine Barnes & Noble having much of an app ecosystem on its tablet as a standalone company. And that, eventually that would have come back to hurt them pretty badly. And I think plugging into Windows 8 and everything that, I mean, Microsoft is definitely a distant third behind Android and the Apple ecosystems, but it's better than what Barnes & Noble had on its own. I think it helps. Um, Obviously, Joe, shares of Barnes & Noble just took off this morning. Um, Shares of Microsoft, eh, basically flat. Um, I mean, is that, what does that say to you? I mean, is it just, as you alluded to before, is it just because Microsoft generates so much cash as a company and $300 million is not all that much in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, that's a pittance at Microsoft. I won't change my valuation estimate based on it. Now, Barnes & Noble, they did just have a huge amount of value unlocked. And it's not just that this value is unlocked. There's actually a strategy going forward. And well, it looks like a path for separating the two businesses because the Nook business does have, if not a bright future, a future. <laughs> the physical store locations, I maintain that in 10 years they won't exist or they'll be so scaled down that they want to separate these two things so that you can have a nice high valuation on the one business with Nook and the other, you know, the bookstore will have a bookstore valuation. Yeah, I was going to say, Charlie, I mean, uh, this is this is great for Barnes & Noble. It's hard to imagine that they're not, you know, popping champagne at, at headquarters. <laughs> But at the end of the day, they still have all those physical locations. Right. They're still dealing with the bricks-and-mortar challenge. Does, right. this, uh, does this help them in any way, even if it's just it buys them more time to, to figure out what to do with them? I think it does. And they made an interesting uh, comment in uh, their last earnings call about getting just tremendous lease deals from landlords right now because they are the only bookseller in town. Um, I do agree with Joe that in 10 years they probably are going to be gone. Um, but for the time being, it looks like they do have a ray of hope. Shares of Sunoco up 20% this morning on the news that Energy Transfer Partners is going to buy Sunoco in a deal valued at $5.3 billion. Um, Joe, I know you look a little bit at, at Sunoco. This, by the way, two companies we've never talked about before uh, on Market Foolery. Welcome or, to the show. <laughs> or on Motley Fool Money. But I mean, uh, I guess one question I have um, is. You know, what does this say about refining uh, as a business worth investing in? Refining is terrible. <laughs> I spent a lot of time looking at it a few years ago. Don't sugarcoat it. I, yeah, I recommended Valero in a special report, and Valero is the biggest refiner in the U.S. At the time, they had 16 refineries, and the gist of it was that they had these really valuable assets. There hasn't been a new refinery built in the U.S. in decades. Gasoline demand, big pictures, relatively sturdy here in the U.S. Nah, that wasn't wasn't good. <laughs> Refining is incredibly capital intensive. Margins are super low because you're a price taker on both ends. It's just a brutal business. And in Sunoco's case, the refineries they had, they were basically facing a situation of shutting them down. And that's a pretty ugly prospect. And the rest of the business was the appealing part. And basically, that's why these guys were bought out. And the rest of the business is the kind of consumer-facing side. So a lot of listeners have probably seen Sunoco gas stations yep. and the logistics to get gasoline to those locations. It, it says a lot about how bad refining is as a business if the like crown jewels are the gas stations. It really does. I, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, the- Well, to hammer home Charlie's point, a lot of people get confused when they talk about big oil and they think that 
you know, Exxon and BP are making all their money with, you know, gas stations. Like, that's not how they make their money. They make their money pulling oil out of the ground and selling it. You know, selling at the retail location level was not a great business. And, and a lot a of those uh, companies were uh, retrenching on their uh, retail presence in the gas station just because yeah. there were so many of them. And unless you have, like, a service base, you're not going to make any money there. Um, does a deal like this um, make you more interested in these types of companies? Because, again, we, we talk about oil and gas companies a lot around here, um, but this is the first time we've mentioned these two. Is it, just because, is it just because the refining business is just that terrible in terms of uh, returning you know, uh, equity to shareholders? Yeah, refining is terrible, and I'm probably not going back to that space. Now, the pipeline business, which is pretty common in the MLP space, is interesting. Those are basically toll booths for natural gas and other liquids, or <laughs> liquids, period, uh, in the U.S. that kind of move around the country. And that's a great business. It's very consistent. You bring in a lot of money. Wall Street Journal is reporting that Coca-Cola is in talks to buy Monster Beverage. Shares of Monster Beverage up more than 10% this morning as a result of the report. Um Joe, if this deal goes through, um, and it's worth pointing out that it hasn't gone through, at least of this tape, as of this taping, um, this is going to be the biggest brand acquisition Coca-Cola has ever made. Um, does that give you pause at all? Does that? Uh, I, I, I'm I'm a Coke shareholder. I'm also someone who has never had like one of these Monster Beverage energy drinks. So I, part of me is just looking at this and saying, "Wow, really." Yeah, as Joe takes a sip of his Red Bull. Um, um, what do you think of this deal? I think it's a good one. And we've talked about this on the show, but this is exactly the kind of move that Coke makes. And it's the advantage of being the big boy with the distribution and reach and marketing power, where small upstart gets some traction, they get a little bit of distribution, they get some you know headway with the brand, and before you know it, there's a real business. The problem is they can't ultimately compete with a Coke or a PepsiCo in, their, you know, in that case, and ultimately... Your goal is to sell out. Now, you might not realize that when you start the business, but that is your end goal. And in this case, I think if you're Monster, you walk away feeling pretty happy about that. And if you're Coke, it looks like they're paying a lot for it, but they're going to be able to sell a lot more cans of Monster in a lot more locations around the world, and they'll get their money's worth out of it. Charlie, I mean... I'm I'm skeptical. I looked at Monster's numbers, and... They are trading at roughly 40 times free cash flow right now, and the business isn't growing as fast as I thought it might have been. Um, it is 16% growth on cash flow uh, for the last three years. Uh, I would have thought they'd be doing a lot better than that. They are the number two player in the energy space behind Red Bull. Uh, it seems like Coke would really be paying through the nose here for this, and I don't necessarily think it's a great deal unless they can pull off what Joe was talking about. And just to well, be clear, I mean, this is a company with a, I mean, Monster Beverage, this is a company with a market cap of around $12 billion. Right. Um, I mean, I'd always vote for a cheaper price. <laughs> yeah. In this case, I'll say every time you see a big boy with distribution make an acquisition like this, like the Nestle deal, like we recently talked about, they're always going to pay a high premium for it. And it looks high at the time. But I do think over time, you'll see that justified. And in this case, Monster's big hang up is just distribution. Like they just don't have the reach that a Coca-Cola does. And we, we've talked before about uh, Honest Tea. We had uh, Seth Goldman, the, uh, the CEO on our radio show. He came to speak here at The Motley Fool. 
obviously that was a much smaller deal when Coca-Cola bought Honest Tea. And ironically, the exact opposite kind of beverage. I was just going to say, yeah. Right. Well, and, and, and that's where I was going because, I mean, it, at least in the case of Honest Tea, it's you know much more natural, much more organic, lower sugar, that kind of thing. I see, I see that as a, a growing trend. I can't help but wonder if like the monster beverage the red bull i know you're basically when joe walks into the studio he walks in with his ipad in one hand and a red bull in the other yep. so i know you're doing I'm trying to cut back you, i know yeah. you're doing your part for the energy drink uh, industry but it part of me just wonders if if maybe it's not a fad but it really has a lower ceiling than people think uh, I, I don't think so. I've heard that argument for at least five years now. And the, all these companies just keep on trucking higher and higher every year. And finally, an Australian billionaire has commissioned a shipyard to build a replica of the Titanic. Construction is set to begin next year with the ship ready to set sail in 2016. The billionaire in question is a gentleman by the name of Clive Palmer, who said at a press conference, and I'm quoting here, of course it will sink if you put a hole in it, but it's going to be designed so it won't sink. So on the one hand, that's... Are you with that? That's, are you with that? I, I mean, you can't argue with... I mean, from a design standpoint, they're doing, they're doing everything right. Um, last week, we talked about Google uh, on Motley Fool Money. Oh. We talked about Google and the driverless car. I couldn't help but think when I read this story, what am I less likely to do? Take a cruise on the Titanic 2 in 2016 or get in a driverless car? You know, when we were talking driverless car, I could think of very few things I would less rather do. This might be one of them. <laughs> Joe? The karma on Titanic 2 couldn't be any worse. Um, I have to thank uh, our colleague in Australia, Scott Phillips. Um, uh, if you haven't checked it out, Fool Australia uh, is up. You can just go to fool.com uh, slash AU. Uh, it's our service based in Australia. Scott Phillips is one of our analysts there. And so I dropped him a note because I was curious about this Clive Palmer guy. You know, hey, he, he's a billionaire businessman. Um, you know, what, what did Scott think of him? Basically, it sounds like Clive Palmer, Clive Palmer may be somewhat akin to being the Donald Trump of Australia. Sort of, you know, not yeah. shying away from uh, publicity. Um, he was uh, just recently named, uh, just recently voted one of the National Living Treasures in Australia, which is a list of 100 people across business and uh, academia and arts and everything uh, who are, you know, the embodiment of Australia. 100 people. Russell Crowe is on this list. Olivia Newton-John on this list. Paul Hogan, not on the list. That is yes. ridiculous. Yes. How is Crocodile Dundee? You call that a list? Yeah. Well, I mean, when, when the part of the criteria is embodying Australia and, and sort of the culture of Australia, I mean, this is a guy who, like it or not, he exported that culture in a big way. He's an ambassador. Not only should he be on there, but Leroy's driver should also be on there from the films. And I'm calling them films and not movies. Um, Leroy, his driver? Yeah. Okay, you're you're much more yeah. um, you're much more focused on the Crocodile Dundee canon of uh, of films than absolutely. Than I am. Leroy, his driver is who? Well, in the movie, he's his driver in the movie, and then the second one, he's like some gangster. That guy should be in it too. Wow, you know what? I I, I mean, I'm just I, it's I, just part of the heritage. I have my celebrated. Qualms. I have my my problems with the list of national living treasures, but but I, I will say this: I'm glad Joe Maker doesn't get a vote in right. Australia. Uh, drop us an email, radio at fool.com. By all means, check out the National Living Treasures list and uh, feel free to just you know suggest, again, Paul Hogan not on the list, Hugh Jackman not on the list.
What about no, Jermaine from Flight of the Concords? Uh, are those guys Australian? Maybe not. Oh. <laughs> Apologies. Charlie Travers, Joe Vigor. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.